This is mission.org. Hey, Marketing Trends fans. This is Ian, host of Marketing Trends and Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. First off, I wanted to thank all of you for subscribing and listening to the podcast. Our goal is to make a show that is helpful for marketing leaders around the world. And we have a fun opportunity to meet the Marketing Trends team in person. We will be podcasting live from Serious Decisions 2019 Summit on May 5th to 8th in Austin, Texas. Thanks to our friends at Salesforce Pardot. And you can nominate a podcast guest. That's right. We are looking for B2B marketing legends to tell their story. You can nominate a teammate or yourself to be a featured guest on the Marketing Trends Podcast if you click on the link in the show notes. Also, make sure to come by the Pardot booth number 402 to win swag and meet the team. And if you can't make it to Austin, don't worry. All of the episodes that we will record will be right here in our Marketing Trends podcast feed and in the marketingtrends.com newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions, email us at team at marketingtrends.com. Take care. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's guest is Sarah Varney, CMO at Twilio. In her illustrious tech marketing career, Sarah has also served as a Senior Vice President of Marketing at Salesforce and CMO at Desk.com. On this episode, Sarah opens up her CMO playbook. She discusses what you can do in your first 90 days as CMO to set yourself up for success, best practices for streamlining budgeting and approvals, how to deal with imposter syndrome, and more. Thanks for listening. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. Lauren Vaccarella, what's going on? Not much. I am so excited for today's podcast. We have one of my all-time favorite people uh, on the podcast today. And someone who was one of the first guests on Marketing Trends. Sarah Varney, what's going on? Nothing. I'm excited to be back here on the podcast. I had so much fun last time. I had to come back again. Yeah. And, you know, when we first had you on, it was definitely you were less than a year as CMO at Twilio. Um, it was before your first Signal conference, which uh, the mission team was at, cataloging what was going on, which was super fun. We saw OK Go, saw the whole thing going on. It was great. Did you see Tony Hawk? We did see Tony was amazing. Yep. He was such a pro, too. We can do a whole He's segment on that. Real pro skater. Yes. Um, exactly. And. You were less than a year in. Now you're at the point where you've had, had had your feet, you know, in the water for a long time. They've acclimated, maybe a little numb. How's it going so far? It's going great. It's been a fantastic year. It's just a really exciting time to be at a company like Twilio that's growing at the pace it's growing. I was just at New Hire Bootcamp yesterday talking to the group there. Uh, and I can't believe it's been a year. And uh, it, it just reminds me of my time at Salesforce when I started there back in 2007. And, you know, you're really part of building this massive machine. Uh, and, you know, being part of, of building that from the ground up is super exciting. Of course, you forget about all the trade-offs and the resource constraints that you have at a company that's only 10 years old. But it's still pretty fantastic. And, you know, every day 
presents a new challenge and new opportunity. So today we wanted to talk about at this CMO roundtable was this idea of making the jump to CMO. Now you've both done this, both done it successfully. And I think that when we talk to a lot of CMOs that there is sometimes some imposter syndrome. There is the process of just getting to the point of getting hired is a is a weird and different process than some of the other jobs. But also this would, could really apply to any marketer in any role. There are a, a lot of things that are similar. There's also some things that are different, dealing with boards and dealing directly with the CEO every day, potentially reporting directly to the CEO. So we wanted to kind of go through all that stuff. I want to start this out with what was your kind of game plan in those first 90 days as you kind of took stock of everything? Uh, yeah, I, my my first part of my game plan, and I think this advice is relevant, whether you're moving from a senior manager to a director or a VP to a CMO, whatever stage you're at. But my first piece of, of kind of getting to know Twilio and getting to know how I was going to be effective was just sitting down with the team. It was a time commitment, but I set up 30-minute one-on-ones with 100 people in marketing <laughs> Oh, really? Uh, I did. Uh, and it was super helpful. It took time, but it was also it also was a shortcut to really understand the ins and outs of the organization, to understand where the sacred cows existed, to understand any dynamics that I was going to have to work through, and just to really level set on where people wanted to take their careers. And so, you know, it's been a time that, you know, I had to prioritize over other things, but it's it's definitely paid off in the long run and I think helped me ultimately move faster in the end. Totally. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. It's the, how do you put in the, the upfront work and the upfront time? And then I'll say that every time I've started a new job or a new role that book the first 90 days, I will dust off and reread. I can honestly say I've never finished the whole book. I finished about two thirds of it oh, four the book, times. The, first the book, the first oh, 90 so days, because really by day yeah. 60, you're too busy to read books. Exactly. Yeah. And you go, you go through and it gives you a few key points. One day I aspire for that last third of the book to tell me what I'm missing. But it's the build relationships and make connections. Don't make assumptions. You don't know what you don't know walking in the door. And I come up with a list of questions that I do in every one of these one-on-ones that I try to keep it casual, try to get to know people, but have three questions that I want to get out, which are usually along the lines of, what do you hope I do? What do you hope I don't do? Mm-hmm. If you want me to change something, what do you think I should change? Who else do you think I should talk to? Yep. And sit down to get those questions and start to build patterns to say, okay, everyone says I need to talk to this, this one person who's in a totally different department. And does it make sense why? but everyone is telling me that that person holds the key to something, I'm going to prioritize that. And that's helped me identify what are these sacred cows. You're not going to get every one of them, but that's helped. Right. Absolutely. And I think you you think back to, you know, it took me 10 years at Salesforce to really be able to know how to get anything done yes. really quickly. And when you come to a new company, you want to think about, all right, help me identify the people that were like me when I left Salesforce. Like, I want to know the people that know how to get done or stuff done. Sorry, Ian. <laughs> oh, um, we'll bleep it out. At the company. And so I think, you know, to Lauren's point, when you're hearing names over and over, that's a signal that this is a person that's going to help help you move faster and you should definitely follow up with them. Absolutely. I'm always fascinated by that dynamic of like the power brokers, like the information brokers. What is that? We got to figure out what that book is. There's some, there's some really interesting book where it, it details like 
who are the like information sharers within yep. the organization and, and how that sort of information flows. And it's always never from the people that like, it's never, you know. It's not the person with yeah. the title. It's not the person you expect. It's this random connector who could be three levels down or in a totally different department. And it's funny, when I was at Box, they were called the magicians. It was like, if you talk to this person, they're a magician. Right. And I didn't get it until you talk to them and you realize, oh, you're the person who knows where all the bodies are buried. You have all the connections and you, they're the people that can help you save three months going down the wrong direction. Absolutely. To be clear, there are no bodies buried at Twilio. I just want that to be. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I found in my, my first year being here, no. <laughs> um, outside of the marketing organization, how did you, did you do something similar or how did you go about doing that same type of relationship building outside, outside Marco? Yeah, I mean, I think it's super important to be thinking about the relationships outside of marketing as much as the ones within. Coming to Twilio, the emphasis on... Uh, product and engineering was much more pronounced than it might have been at Salesforce. And Salesforce is no secret that it's a very much a sales and marketing focused organization. And so it was really important that I build the trust of people in product management and engineering right out of the gates. I was coming from a place that is, you know, obviously does not have that that same reputation. And so building trust and credibility with them early on was going to be key to to me having a successful 90 days in a year. And, and then okay. I would say, I think that's a really good thing for every CMO walking in the door or any leader walking in the door is understand what kind of company it is. Ideally, you figure that out before you before you take the job, because there are some companies that are sales led. There are some companies that are product and engineering led. It's rare that a company is marketing led. One day I might find one. Uh, with the marketing CEO. <laughs> go, go with the marketing yeah. CEO. Even then, sometimes they really like product. But knowing what you're walking into, that I remember I had talked to a, a company that was so heavy that was so heavy product and engineering walking in the door. I remember talking to them saying and talking a lot to the CEO and to the board of, are you sure marketing has support? Are you sure sales has support? Because this is such a heavy product and engineering culture. Are you ready to have this level of leadership? Right. And I think it also, that's another situation where you really have to lead with humility. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when you were saying like, just you, you don't know what you don't know, mm -hmm. and it's fine to walk into a role and, and say that. I know coming over to Twilio, working in developer relations or managing developer operations was new for me. Mm -hmm. And I made sure to not assume that I was going to be able to bring the Salesforce playbook over and, you know, walk around hackathons with a lead scanner. Like that wasn't going to make me any friends. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, you know, I really tried to sit down with that team in particular and understand how their business, how that part of the organization really ticks and what motivates their constituents with you know, being the developers. Is that part of the like getting to know your customers, but also like how your marketers need to know your customers, right? Because I think that that kind of feels like it's part of it where when you bring a playbook in, and we, we, we're going to do a whole episode on, on just playbooks here in the not too distant future, because I think it's a really difficult topic for, for marketers to understand of like, I can't just walk in and do the same thing that I did, but there are a lot of plays that, that I could potentially run. Did you find that the way that you had to maybe look at how your marketing team saw your customer might have changed? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think here at Twilio, I had to be very mindful of what parts of the playbook would be relevant here. There are parts from my background that are completely relevant for the stage that Twilio is at. We have a growing sales organization. There's just some fundamental foundational connectivity between sales and marketing mm-hmm. that we have definitely put in place in the last year that is just helping us scale. So things like having a campaign council where sales and marketing sit together in the same room. I mean, Lauren's like laughing as I say this, because this was like religion at at Salesforce. But it was one of the first things I had to do at Box was sales doesn't know what campaigns we're running. So they assume we're doing nothing. Okay, let's get together and have these weekly or biweekly calls where it's this is what's going into market. This is what we're thinking about launching. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I've kind of become a queen of councils because I just, <laughs> I think communication funny. is just so key right Critical. now. And if we're not all in the same room, kind of hashing out how to prioritize yep. it's, you can't assume that everyone's reading your blanket update emails and, and other pieces you really need to be, you know, obviously they're face to face on zoom or any sort of video conference or, but, or in a room face to face with people really hashing out, I think at this phase. You know, that's, that was a very applicable part of my playbook. But, you know, when it came to developer marketing, most of the tools that I had used at Salesforce were not going to be as relevant. Mm-hmm. And so that's an area where, you know, I really had to lean on my team and my leadership that covered that area to get skilled up on what it meant to market to developers and, you know, how I could use my background to to help them look at things in different ways, but without, you know, ripping and replacing everything that was was already in place because they had a lot of great foundational pieces already there. And I think that really reflects sort of going into the role with this from this place of security on yourself where you I've seen CMOs go in and have this degree of insecurity where it's I have to think I know everything. I have to be the expert in everything. And to do that, I'm going to say this is the way we do and this is everything you did was wrong. But fundamentally, we don't know all the answers of everything. And you have to go in and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what works as a playbook. And by the way, you're really smart people. And what can I learn from you? And how do you bring that bring that out of people? Yeah, I completely agree. Do you think, actually, we'll get into the technical marketing stuff, because I think that's a really interesting insight. And I think it applies to a lot of marketers that are in any type of heavy technical thing. And I don't just mean like tech technical, but like, you know, when you're selling to like construction professionals or anything, just deeply technical knowledge where like, this is, you really got to dive in and they're probably not going to read your every email, your drip campaign or something like that. Cause they're, you know, don't even have email on their phone or something. I guess nobody has that now, but, uh, but I wanted to touch back on, on sacred cows for a second, because I think that this is something that, that people might not know. What are some, and it doesn't have to be here, but just like over the course of your career or, or talking to other CMOs, what are some of those sacred cows at companies that could be a huge you know, trip hazard for a CMO coming in? I mean, I, I know there's a, lot of, there's a lot of CEOs out there and we've all kind of like read the, the Corn Ferry study that might not have a lot of trust for their CMO or maybe that's overblown, maybe it's not. Or maybe it's just a case by case basis. But what are some of those things where it's like if you upset these things, you're you're just going to be in for tough sledding, or you just won't be in the job anymore? It's a hard question. Yeah. I think it depends at every company to a degree. I I remember when I ran marketing at Adroll, just figuring out the weird little things people cared about. The CEO 
cared a lot about t-shirt designs, which sounds <laughs> so yeah. random. CEO swag is a thing. It's totally a thing. And anytime I wanted to have a t-shirt designed, I had to go to the CEO and get the CEO to look at and to approve t-shirts. And that that was not something I could touch or think that I could do on my own because that was that was his bag. Well, but you think about it, we all have those things too that we really care about. Yes. Like I got, I had a video come my way yesterday and I was like, you know, detailing second by, by second. second. <laughs> like, I don't like this B-roll. What's the skyline? You know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm turning into one of those people. But there's things like where you have, and most likely you've been involved in a project like that before where you've really had to sweat the details and you want to like give that, you know, you want to drive that level of excellence down to your team. Yes. So I, it's just interesting for someone at a CEO level who you would think doesn't have the the time to be down in those details. There are just things that people, all like, of us, deeply emotionally care, care about. about. I do the same second by second video edit. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's both just, of you. I didn't know I picked that up from Salesforce. Yeah, I, maybe it's a Salesforce I thing. Think, <laughs> thank you, John Zizimos. No, we all greatly appreciate how much better we are at video because of you. Well, so we'll get back to sacred cows in a second. This is a good tangent. So but Salesforce is notorious for having a really high CMO approval level for video. Oh, completely. But I but not every company's that way, right? Like there's other companies where it's like, you know, whoever can approve a video. It doesn't matter. You're have you have the, you know, the intern on the social account that's like shooting live video, nobody cares, right? So versus like the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. Like approving video. But I think that's a really interesting thing. Are there things that like what's that? What's at Lauren's CMO approval level? Like, what is the stuff that you absolutely have to see that you won't let out the door unless you see it? So honestly, some things have depended by company because there was a time where I was running marketing where I didn't have to look at the email copy of emails that were going out unless maybe it was a major funding announcement, maybe it was a major announcement. But for the most part, I didn't have to care. When I was at Box, Aaron cares a lot about the email that goes out. Yeah. And email copy for certain types of emails So because he cares so much about making sure customers get the right level of information out and they're getting the right amount of product detail that he wants to take a look at it before, meant I am reviewing email copy for product release updates down to the, okay, have we copy edited this? Have we spell checked this? What's the image in here? How's the design for this? To a degree that normally I shouldn't be paying that much attention, but I know that this is something that is deeply cared about by the CEO and is, you can say the sort of product and how product focused that company is, just not wanting to drop anything on it created this level of spending probably too many hours of my time on it so that when it went to him, it wouldn't spend any of his time and he could just look at it and say, this is good. So I would get very uptight about those where I've been at other jobs where I care less about it. Things that I think will always have to go through me, major web updates, it's too It's too important. It's the face of the company. I trust my team implicitly, but it is so important for the company that it, the website is the best possible representation. I can't have, I can't have that go out without me saying it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say in general, I try to prioritize for visibility and traffic. So yes. homepage of the website. Yes, yes. absolutely. Or things that are going to have a major impact on my funnel. Yes. I absolutely want to be in the loop on. Uh, I think as you get lower and lower down, then I'll try, uh, I'll try to just generally put more standards in place so that mm-hmm. people generally know what I'm looking for. Like 
please don't use any stock photography that would be hung in your dentist's office. Like, yeah, off that's limits. a great one. That's a great rule for everybody. Uh, or if, you know, and in like decks too, I, I, you know, I think coming from Salesforce, which is a very pitch heavy mm-hmm. organization, like no like puzzle piece clip art or, yes. you know, things that you probably would have been seen on your, you know, 90s Internet Explorer search engine. Like just there's just showing examples of what bad looks like um, has been helpful for me to see the overall quality get more in line with my expectations yeah. and so that I don't have to be looking at a web page that gets, you know, a thousand views Absolutely. a quarter. Eat this, um, not that. Right. It's classic. Yeah. And it really is to your point of the the visibility and traffic. And then when you first come in, getting the team to the level of standard that you're used to, if they're not there yet and constantly sort of raising the bar. So you get to a point where maybe you had to be that anal about email copy but six months later, someone two levels down has internalized that. So by the time it gets to you, it is this quick, I'm done, I can move on. And that's really what you want. And to sort of build over time is you have to be less hands-on because your team has just up-leveled themselves to a degree where you were almost redundant. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just like explaining why you're making the decisions you are. And like, because I think it's in your head as to why you picked a certain subject line or why you didn't like the way a page was structured. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you can talk out loud and people can pick up on the patterns, the better able you're going to be to to scale. I heard one of the one of the great pieces of uh, sales advice. I think this was might have been Jason Lemkin, where he was like, I sat on the sales floor so that every single every salesperson could hear how I talked about the product. Mm -hmm. It's like the same sort of thing, right? It's like if you're talking about certain things and you're making like corrections in public so that they all know exactly what you're looking for, then you're going to get some osmosis there on the rest of the team, right? And it's the same way that when a CEO explains him or herself and this is why I care and this is where the company is going, all of their leaders can take that, internalize it and push it down. It's the same thing when Sarah goes and explains this is how I want a landing page designed and this is why I want this structurally changed so that the people on the team, it clicks in their head and then the next time their first version is that much better and then your feedback gets better and then the next time their version gets better and better to a point where you don't have to give as much feedback. What about budget levels? Like are there certain, I mean, I know that at Google, for example, it's like, you know, they have extremely strict things for by position, by role at the company is, you know, what what budget you're at or what budget you can approve. You know, other companies, it's like just everything costs over a certain purchase has to go to the CMO. How do you look at like budget approvals and things like that, both of you? I, I see every, uh, I mean, at the size we're at, I see every budget line uh, or every PO come through to my inbox. And for the smaller ones, I think it's kind of similar into how I treat what I need to approve and what I don't. At a certain threshold, I might be less of an inspector on it. Uh, at higher thresholds, if I especially have no idea what the item is for, I will definitely be yeah, yeah. Um, doing some inspection. And again, that's a thing where pattern helps kind of streamline the process. Like if someone knows they're going to be sending me a PO for call it over a hundred grand, they better be sending it with an explanation. If they don't, if we haven't already talked about it face to face, and they, you know, they are not sure if I do know about it. And that's, you know, just been helpful in, in speeding up the process. No, I completely agree with you. Actually, I have a really, one of my favorite Salesforce budget stories. So you remember Graham, the old yep. CFO, who's now the chairman of the board for Splunk. Yes, I did. I just yes, saw that. Yep. Which is very, Graham, if you're listening, we love you. So I remember the first time I met Graham in person. And I'm at Salesforce. I'm there a few years. 
and Graham is the CFO and it's the first time I meet him in person. I'm in a meeting or something. And I was like, hi, Graham. I'm Lauren Vaccarello. And he looks at me, raises his eyebrow. He's like, I know who you are. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He's like, you're the one who spends all the money. <laughs> That's because great. At a certain level, it gets bumped up to the CFO. And I was running digital advertising spends yeah. that were bumped up to the CFO. And you're the one who spends all the money. And I was like, but I, but I, but I make money too. Right. I, do, I don't, right. I don't That's just, my reputation. I don't just spend, I make money. He's like, I know. It's nice to meet you in person. <laughs> That's a pretty funny, it's a pretty funny anecdote because it is interesting to think about that that person only sees you on like the spending side, but not on the revenue. Like there, are they going to get, you know, like a Lauren's attributed pipe this quarter update? Like, no, you're not going to say that to maybe, I don't know. He's not, I was like, but I got 14 to one return on that money. Right. I just, yes, it was a million dollars. Chasing him down the hallway. Yes. Graham, Graham. But I will, I will never forget that. And it's, you know, you have it too, the, when you have a more distinct name, (laughs) And people see it often enough that it's like, oh, yep, I remember this one. I want to go back into the sacred car- cow. Yeah, I know. Yes. We kind of avoided the question. Yeah. So, yeah, what are some other what are some other sacred cows or things that could get you into some, uh, you know, whether it's culture problems or hot water or just kind of a general like they don't really get what it's like to be at this company or whatever. I mean, quite honestly, I had to learn how to change my messaging style when I came here at Twilio, came to Twilio versus Salesforce. And it was largely based on the audience that Twilio traditionally mm-hmm. targets. So when we were thinking about, we have a billboard on the 101, when we we're thinking about billboard copy, I wouldn't hesitate at all at Salesforce to say something like, contact center freedom has arrived. And for mm-hmm. the average developer, that's very marketing-y and yeah, very yeah, yeah. not the way that they want to be marketed to. And so, you know, there we ultimately did run a billboard along that those lines to our contact center audience, but it did take some selling internally to say, well, you know, this is a new market for us. We actually are going after a non-technical buyer and we're trying to, to build awareness. And so, you know, there was some level of internal selling I had to do to get us comfortable in messaging in a different way. And then, you know, where we are targeting a developer, I definitely had to change my style in terms of being, building more trust, being more just kind of straightforward in our, our positioning, coming at it from a, how can we help you or how can we, how can we help educate? And that was just something that, that I had to learn. But if I had just gone straight at it and said, hey, I'm going to do it the way I've always done it, you know, it definitely would have been a rough road for me. You know, it's interesting you say that. So we, as I mentioned, our team went to Signal this year. And it was really interesting hearing the different speakers, like the technical speakers versus the not. And like Jeff, the CEO of Atulio, coding on stage, which is pretty phenomenal. But I think that it's, it's one of those really interesting kind of like differences between highly technical people and, you know, non-technical people. And I think we kind of like throw those around as buzzwords sometimes. But if you see them talk on stage, if you see them present on stage, it's a different way of speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, it is way less flourish a lot Mm -hmm. of times. There's way less, you know, especially like us as marketers, like a lot of times we're preaching to this like golden future that we see this horizon on the hill. Storyteller painting the vision and they're like, uh-huh, yeah, like, no, no, what, like now it's real. Right. What can I, you know, yeah. what can I get my hands on today? Yeah. Like what's, but like send me the code, you yeah. know, sort of thing. But yeah, so I mean, that, that that is one of the ultimate, you know, sacred cows that I think having that technical team and just not fully embracing that, I think is one of the fastest ways to mm-hmm. lose, lose touch. 
And a lot of this goes back to me, and it's the same sort of core principles as a marketer of know your audience. It's also know your internal audience. And don't come in with this assumption that my way is better and this is this is how we do and you brought me in because this is how we do is a great way to make sure everybody hates you. Yes. And it's really hard to get things done when you don't have that sort of internal support and buy-in. And it's the, so much of it is you don't know what you don't know and you don't quite know what someone's hot button is going to be, whether it's making fun of a logo and then finding out that the CEO actually designed that logo and it has this weird special place in their heart. And when you're at earlier startups, a lot of times the website's actually designed or built by the the founders yes. who will tell you the website's terrible. But if you say that, it that's stings a, great, a little bit more. That's a really interesting insight because there are things when you go into a new company and you're just like, why would anyone ever do things that way. And it's like, it's a cultural thing. It's like, that's been around since the days we were in the garage. Like, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? That's like core to us. This is who we are. You don't get us. But I do think you shouldn't be scared also to ask why things have been done the way they've been done. Because I think sometimes people do, I will say, you know, coming into a CMO role, there are situations where people will say, well, the CEO has always wanted it this way. And so some people might be like, okay, well, that's the case. I've got to do it this way without going to this. If you have access to the CEO without going to him and saying, is this really the way you want it? Do I need to like adhere to this verbatim or is that like a guiding principle? Yeah. And I, cause I think if you only listen to that feedback and, and keep down that same path, you also might not be bringing your own unique view on things and missing opportunities to to bring change to parts of the organization where it could be a great thing. Absolutely. And it's so much of that comes from it's okay to question, but to go on and to ask the question versus telling me. Yeah, telling go in with not a like it doesn't have to be a my way or the highway yeah. approach. It's, it's you know why is this like this? Can you tell me what you're really trying to get out of this? Like what are you actually trying to accomplish? Is this something you'd want to try? And then I found that once you build that degree of trust, you can have those conversations in a much sort of freer way versus coming in, having the sort of my way or the highway, and you are still unknown. And I don't know if it's at every company, and I'd love your opinion on this, of sort of coming in and how much how much trust is there and how much trust has to be built because there's sort of the the new the new kid credit, but there's also the but we don't know you yet. Yeah, and I think that just that just takes time, and it's a little bit of a you know you've got to fake it till you make it yeah. situation. I always uh, I always tell a story. One of my roles at Salesforce, I came into a role and kind of a I was kind of the dark horse for the role, and I ended up getting it. And I I emailed the team and said you know oh I'm so excited to get started and can't wait to to dive into this product. And it was like crickets of a response, oh. and I was like oh wow this you know talk about imposter syndrome. I'm like what am I doing? This is going to be terrible. One person responded and I still am always like, you're one of my favorites. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I had to persevere on, Mm -hmm. like I had gotten the role for a reason and I had to uh, just focus, put my blinders on and make impact. And, uh, even though I was kind of like the evil stepmother for you know a quarter in there, <laughs> I started to get some wins under my belt and, and build the trust of the team and then was able to you know take off from there. But 
you know, it's it's easy to be distracted and by your own insecurities early on and to kind of focus on keeping everyone happy. And I think you just have to f- set your priorities, figure out the top three to five things you're going to do in those first six months and just be relentless about it. Yep. And it's uh, everyone wants to be part of a winning team. Right. That's really that's brutal, by the way, not getting not getting their response. That's that's pretty tough. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I think I'd rather. What is it? What did you say? Queen of uh, Queen of Camp? No, Queen of Queen of Councils. Queen of Councils. I'd rather be the Queen of Councils than the uh, than the evil stepmother. Yes. Um, but that that's pretty brutal. Do you think that there are ways, you know, you could have kind of positioned yourself in a better light, or do you think it was kind of just like that was the culture at the time? I mean, it was a. Uh, it was like a pretty political situation that oh, I was yeah, just yeah. like not, you know, it wasn't. It, That's right. Yeah. It was a it was a less healthy situation, but it honestly, well, all no, of no, us no, are no. going to have times where we walk into the like this is not a great situation, and you were brought in for a reason, right. probably to fix the fact that it's not a great situation. And well, and there's sometimes you step into a role where it can't be disclosed why some other person didn't get it for yes. whatever HR That's reason it, yeah, or the person wasn't performing in certain, in certain ways, whatever it is. And you might not ever be able to share why that is. And so in that sense, you're, you just have to build your own brand. Yep. And keep on moving. Like you were, you have to remember someone decided that you were a fit for this role and qualified for this role right. and you know, build the foundation on that. Right. And if you go in with the, am I really good enough? These people don't like me. It's, it's it will be self-sabotaging and it, you will end up setting yourself up to being a lot less successful. And it's so hard going in. I mean, especially when you go in and everyone's like, whatever lady. Yeah versus you come in and everyone cheers and is super excited for you to join. But going into a role where you are the clear best choice and the clear winner and you have tons of support, I still walk in thinking, oh my gosh, am I good enough? Is this really it? And I still have to pick this up. And I think everyone still goes in with that sense of imposter syndrome, but it is how do you get to the other side? Because the gremlins in your head will not do you any good. No. I mean, I think I even, I read a quote from Mark the other day, which I thought was really impressive, that you know, he said, when you're going after something really hard, like surround yourself with the people that are going to tell you you can do it versus yes. the people who aren't, because there's going to be plenty of people who are going to, you know, tell you that it's not possible. And that's not to say, you know, don't create this echo chamber of everyone telling you you're awesome all the time, but it's, you know, in the that period when you're just trying to get off the ground and get some early wins, like... You need people that are going to be there with positive energy and support. Like the gremlins in your head will do more than enough naysaying. Exactly. You need everyone else around you to remind you that the gremlins in your head are not real. You were amazing. This is why you have this job. And to help you recognize all of the great work that you're doing, because it's so easy to dismiss the great things you're doing and focus on, well, here's the thing that I missed. It's an interesting situation, specifically when the gremlins are your investors or are your board. And I think that that's part of the thing that having, you know, your trusted advisors or your CMO roundtable or your, you know, marketing pals to sit around, part of the reason why we made this podcast, to hear that other people are going through the struggle. And I think a lot of times, you know, people's leadership style, especially in that capacity, in a board or an advisor capacity, is supposed to give you tough love, or they think that you need this type of tough love, or they think that they need to be pressing you about something. 
you're like, you know, dude, I don't need to be pressed on this. Like, I got it. I know like where we're, you know, falling short. I need you to see the wins that we just stacked up and be like, those are pretty good too, you know? And I think that it's just tough because a lot of times those advisors or people is their first time doing it too. Like they've never been, you know, they've never been an investor in a startup before, or they've never been in that job before. And they've definitely never been on the board at that, at your company at that time before. And I think that that's part of the thing sometimes people forget is if you're going through, you know, you're going through this thing and they might seem like they're an expert. They've been on all these sort of things. They can pattern match, but Ultimately, like they're not talking to the customers every single day. Like they're not the ones reading email copy or looking at the stuff. And you're like, hey, here's what the data is showing us. You know, you can think one thing, but that might not be the case. Have you found that talking to folks in that type of capacity has been kind of like a fun challenge or has it been a challenge at all? Or is it just something that that you kind of like look forward to as something like, hey, these people have a lot of experience? I think it's absolutely a fun opportunity. I think you get a new perspective from leaders across, you know, in a board, you're going to have leaders from 10 different companies or 10 different backgrounds. And so you're automatically exposed to very high performers in a single setting. So I think right there, you, you there, that's a huge opportunity. On the challenging side, you have people in the room that are not career marketers. They're going to inspect a lot of, of what you're doing, your tactics, your metrics, as they should being part of the board. And I think that's where having a really strong CMO network, where having a really strong just network of, of marketers across all different functions in different companies is really important. Because if you can say, all right, well, here's our metrics, but also talking to three other similar companies in this space, their conversion rates for this type of program is XYZ. So we are, you know, 2% behind. I think, I think just giving them added perspective that it's not just your view and, and your glimpse of the funnel will give them more confidence that you're looking at it from a broader perspective and, and really able to understand what you know, good conversion looks like, what a good enterprise program looks like, and you know, not just having your own kind of single view of it. It's phenomenal insight. Do you find that this, well, actually, let's just kind of switch gears here to this, this idea of the, the kind of like five tool athlete, the like five tool marketer and this kind of, uh, I don't want to say unicorn. Everybody says unicorn now mythical beast. That is, oh, you're going to step into this in the, in the job search, you know, the search firm or whatever it is, is looking for this person has all these skills and they're going to, you're going to be able to step in and do that. That's kind of where some of that imposter syndrome kind of creeps in where you're like, they were looking for a person with five things. They hired me and I don't have those five things. How do you kind of deal with that, that kind of, uh, that issue? And then what are some of the ways that you can kind of like head that off or, or potentially, uh, circumvent the problem? So there is this whole concept of the sort of the the full stack marketer who is an expert of everything right now. They are the best product marketer, the best demand gen person, the best brand marketer, the best corporate comms person. And fundamentally, this this best of everything doesn't and can't exist because they either to get that degree of experience, they have changed jobs every single year. So they probably have a terrible resume. They've never really gone deep on anything. And there's just not enough hours in the day to be an expert in anything. The things that I've tried to do is wherever I end up sort of going or working and working with different CEOs, help them pattern match. What are you really looking for? And I will have very candid conversations of, I am probably 60% 60 performance marketer, 
30% brand and, you know, the rest product marketing. So what are you looking for? If you want someone that's 70% product marketer and 10% demand jam, you probably want somebody else. But do you so, think they know? I mean, like, this, this is my question. They, it's like, they often don't know. Yeah, or they don't know what any of that stuff means. No. <laughs> or the person has never actually, like, have you met this person that yeah. you're talking about that you want to work with? Like, I, that's kind of my my take on this. And Laura and I yeah. talk about this offline a lot. Yeah. But it's this idea that could you tell, like, if I'm standing against the wall, like, Ian, he's, that guy's 70% brand. I can just see it. You know, like, he, it's just a ridiculous. And it's like, or you just look at their experience. But like, you don't know what I did for, you know, those two years at this job or whatever it is, huh. right? Like, it's just kind of a ludicrous. It, it totally is. And it's the, we all have what our resume looks like and then what our capabilities are. And what people should be hiring for is you might not be the, absolute best developer marketing leader in the entire world. But what you're good at is building a strong team, identifying talent and hiring someone who is the best possible developer marketer. And at a CMO level, you shouldn't have to be the smartest person in the room who's the best at everything. Our job is to set goals, set strategy, and then also hire the people who are the best at individual functions. I 100% agree. I think uh, one of the main roles of a CMO is hiring and developing talent and setting clear priorities and a strategic vision. I mean, I think it obviously helps if you have skills which complement where the company is trying to go, Mm -hmm. if they've struggled with communicating a broader vision that ties to different relevant topics in the industry and you have product marketing or comms experience, sure, that's great. If they are having trouble with growth optimization and are really trying to convert certain parts of the funnel and you come from a demand gen background, yes, that's going to be you know more beneficial to the organization overall and you probably have a deeper network of demand gen people to call up and hire. But overall, I think being fundamentally a person who can recognize and identify talent, who can hire a diverse team Mm -hmm. with skills that complement each other and not just hire like one cookie cutter person all the time is just it's super critical. How much do you leverage the network of like other marketing peers to tap into them and be like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a really good demand gen person or I'm looking for someone who really knows SEM or, or whatever it is. Like, what, Lauren, what? how many times do I uh, text you? <laughs> yeah. All the time. All the time. And I mean, this is this is what you do is, but you also are like, who do, who do I know that knows this? Who do I trust? Who do you got? It's, we all... It's also a really good reminder that, especially in tech marketing, it's a small world. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be really careful not to burn bridges because whether or not you get an interview can sometimes be down to that text message between two buddies. And if that person, you know, even not even if they've managed that person directly, but have had some passing experience and you have to prioritize who you're going to talk to, that can can knock you out of the running. One of the things that gets gets tossed around that I think is – it's just really bad advice is just like, don't catch up. Like, don't be the person who reaches out to people and be like, hey, let's catch up for coffee. Like catching up with people is the best way to find like those type of opportunities, yeah. especially if you go into, you know, meetings as like, obviously as a sophisticated, you know, executive or leader, like I know what I need right now. I know that there's three things that I need right now. One is more customers always, but one is <laughs> a, a new, um, you know, SEO gal. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, whatever it is. But I think that that's, that's one of the things that you see that tossed around as advice, like all the time on like LinkedIn or wherever, like that's freaking horrible advice. It's the worst. And I mean, 
unintentionally what I think served me well during my time at Salesforce that I wish I can say I did this intentionally. When I first started there, anytime someone new got hired, I would reach out and go to coffee with no no agenda. Mm-hmm. The company was like 2,200 people and I just wanted to get to know people and I like people and I just had this genuine desire to, oh, this person started. It would be really nice when this person is new to have somebody reach out because it was nice when someone did that to me. So I always just did that. And then I ended up, and this is, you know, a decade ago, now knowing a zillion people, getting to know people in that organization who then maybe three years later I happened to need to work with and had a better relationship with them. We all go off in all of these different places And I still have that just genuine desire that I like catching up with people without I'm going to talk to you because I need something. It's I'm going to talk to you because I'm genuinely interested. And by the way, four months from now, I may say, hey, do you know someone who can run UK marketing? Do you have somebody great in the UK that you can refer me to? Or a friend of mine is looking for a product marketer in the dev space. Who do you have? And you just spend time investing in these networks and it ends up being shortcuts you can use. And as a CMO, when you're going into a new job, how quickly you can get up to speed and get the team going. Sometimes your biggest obstacle is not enough bodies. So this is going to be your accelerator. I mean, you almost, not to be too formulaic about it, because I, similar to Lauren, I meet up with people because I genuinely want to catch up and they're friends at this point in, in, you know, our relationship, but you almost treat it like an enterprise sales cycle. You know, this is not like, these are not, this is not a create and close situation in the quarter. Like this is a a long, we're playing the long game. Right. And you've got to just, you know, you've got to have Think about it like a funnel. You've got to have enough like yep. um, top of funnel conversations all the way to people that you know are probably looking to leave their job in six months to a year, all, and, yeah. you know, and or people that are like ready for their next thing now. And it might not be that you have an opportunity ready, but, you know, if you have those relationships and, and you know, are not just reaching that out to that person in the, in the time of need, you're uh, I think you're going to have a higher success rate. Yeah. A good parallel to that is the. Uh you know, you can work remote for the first like year and then we'll we'll adjust sort of thing. Not that that not to be like, you know, devilish here, but it's it is one of those things where like if you really want that person in the building, it's like there's a way to get them in the building potentially a, a lot earlier. And I think that that sort of stuff, like catching up with people when they live on the other coast or mm-hmm. in another country or stuff can be really tough. And there's like ways that you can kind of, you know, keep those leads warm for uh, for lack yeah. of a better term. I am, as my totally random funny story is, I know the CEO of a very sort of different company um, in the media vertical that I've known for years because before I was at Salesforce, I had interviewed there, ended up not taking the job, really getting along with the CEO. They end up getting acquired. He's now the CEO of this massive media company. Every few years, for no reason, I just reach out and like grab coffee with him just interesting person to know. He has never said no to this. The first time I did it, it was very much like, like, what what do you need? Do you need a job? I'm like, Jim, I don't need a job. I just saw this like great news about you. And I just always enjoyed meeting you. And it's one of these connections that I've had over the years with no real agenda. But if something happens or comes up, he knows he can reach out to me in a second about, do you need someone to fill in this? Or I can reach out and say, hey, by the way, I notice that you're interested in this and I'm actually doing this big fundraiser. Do you want to pop by? And it's having those 
sort of loose connections and long-term connections of like, this is an enterprise sales cycle. This may be five years from now or 10 years from now, but sort of keeping those, keeping those relationships. What if you don't live here? I know, you know, we have, we have an audience, I think in 129 countries at this point. No so thanks. yeah, no big deal. Thanks to all of our international listeners who have to put a, up with us talking about uh, us being in the Bay Area a little too often. But I, I think that that's one of the tough things. I mean, that's the brilliant thing about events, obviously. And when your company especially can send you to them and it's a huge value add. If folks are outside of, uh, you know, a large metropolitan area where they can meet a lot of people, what would be your advice to, to those folks that might not might not be close to a large area with a lot of other marketers? Well, first off, if you're if you're looking for a job and you have a company in mind, a lot of at least in the software space, a lot of these companies have roadshows, and you know, I think and they're free, and I think it's it's a great opportunity just to go and learn about the company, meet people that are staffing the event and, you know, build relationships, especially, you know, if they're coming to a city, normally they'll have some regional leads that are actually based there and you can go from there. You know, I think there's a number of different marketing organizations in in cities across the U.S. especially, and that can be a way to network. You know, I've seen people that are more entrepreneurial about it, set up their own marketing groups and and have meetups for coffee or have dinner meetups every six weeks or month, whatever it is. But obviously that's going to take a little bit more care and feeding and desire on that person's part versus just jumping into something that already exists. And I think the, I love the, like go to whatever roadshows are coming town. If there's networking events, go make the extra effort. And even if you sit there and say, you know, I'm, I don't really like networking events. I'm pretty introverted. This is, this is part of your job get out, go meet people, go to these as much as possible. And if you're somewhere where they fundamentally don't exist, there's this thing called the internet. (laughs) It is a great way to connect with other humans, whether it is not just following someone on, say, Twitter, but also responding and commenting and talking to them if they're active or commenting on what they're doing on LinkedIn and if they're, you know, hosting a webinar, actually interacting with them on it. You'd be surprised how many people that I have met and connected with on the internet. And a couple of, I always get really, Twitter really friends. Twitter friends. Actually, I oddly get LinkedIn friends because commenting on LinkedIn is still a little rare. So when people comment and then send me a follow up, it's like, oh, that was so nice. You commented on my post and you just sent me an email. Yeah, DM uh, Lauren if you're listening. That's <laughs> DM a great, me, that's it's a great, a great strategy. <laughs> and I've had a couple of young women actually a couple international and a couple of domestic that sent me like emails that were super simple and said, you know, I read this that you did. I listened to your podcast. I would love just to talk to you and get some, some career advice. Totally. And there was one person that I kept meaning to actually connect with, but I couldn't make it happen. And then she disappeared and didn't follow up with me. And I have no idea what her name is, nor will I ever find her again, but I wish she would have followed up. But it's a good way that people will actually respond if you really want to get to know people. Don't do the mass email because I'm just going to delete that. But when it is personalized personalized, and thoughtful, and again, it's these people that are playing the long game. They're not hitting me up for a job. They're not trying to sell me anything. It's just, I want to do this and I would like to learn from somebody. Yeah, I think people are way more willing to be mentors and to provide career advice than you might imagine. And if you attend an event or listen to a podcast or read a blog post where you feel like 
this person has something that you could learn from, I, I wouldn't hesitate to try and reach out to them and see if, you know, you could have more of a one-to-one relationship. All right, let's get into some lightning round questions. We've already done one lightning round with you. So we'll do, this is our second version. Different questions this time. You don't know what's coming. As always, thanks to our friends at Pardot. They're great. We love them. Go to pardot.com slash podcast to find some more info that you'll need. Lauren, go ahead. Lightning round. Uh, so what is your best advice for working with a CEO? Uh, I think it's being adaptable, being ready for different asks, for different opinions, for taking in ideas and and figuring out if that's going to drive your company goals forward and, and being able to communicate back to him or her about why that might work or, or why we should think about a different approach. What is your favorite graduate of Bishop O'Dowd High School? Uh, Ian Faison, obviously. Oh, wow. Woo. Oh, That's right. I would probably say mine's uh, Kirk Morrison because he played for in the NFL and he's friends with uh, my friend Jessica. And any uh, any dragons in the, uh, in the NFL is always a fun thing. I mean, in all honesty, I love you, Ian, but I also love... Debbie Sorry. Fields, the creator of Mrs. Fields Cookies. That's a great one. Also, for our listeners who don't know, Sarah and I went to the same high school, so that's why. <laughs> I might have got, like, part of it got cut from that episode, and I will never forgive our audio engineers for cutting that bit. It was such an organic thing that we tell. It's really funny. But, uh, yeah, that's a good one. That's I mean, it's she's definitely more accomplished than me, so uh, not... And, and who doesn't love cookies? And who doesn't love cookies? If you have a new CMO, new head of marketing, what three things do you think they should do their first month? Uh, I'd say, number one, get to know the team, get to know all of the the dynamics of the team. I think, uh, number two, try to set metrics as early as you can and try to rally the team around the fewest amount of metrics so that you can be consistent and people will have a general understanding of what's what's good and, and what's bad. And then I think really try to plot out your, you know, first two quarters. It's kind of, I know that's kind of a cheat because it's like, you know, what would you wish for with three wishes? And you say, you know, first wish would be more wishes. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's important to really set a strategy and vision. And it's okay if it's conservative, but I think you want the team early on to have the confidence that you have a plan, that you understand the general dynamics of the business and that you're going to start executing. What do you do for fun? I am a huge country music fan. This is no surprise if you follow me on Twitter and it's uh, in my uh, also profile. Also, a great Twitter follow. I, I got to give you a shout out. You have some good stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm a huge country music fan. I grew up listening to country music. It does not mean I voted for Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> and it's just something that uh, my husband and I really enjoy. And I've probably been to over 100 country concerts. I just saw Brothers Osborne at the Fox last weekend. They were phenomenal. Wow, that is mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah. And by the way, Twitter handle at Sarah Varney Bright. We'll link it up. It'll be linked in the show notes. My final lightning round question. Um, what are you most excited about in, in tech? I think from a marketing perspective, there is so much change happening and in a good way. I think when we think about when we worked at Salesforce yeah. together, retargeting didn't exist. In that while, yeah. right? Social it's, marketing didn't exist. Facebook uh, was a baby. Yes, Facebook was a baby. My boss wrote a like why you should use Facebook for a business book. And so it's just crazy to think how much things have changed in 10 years. And I think we're going to start to see a lot of progress in terms of online attribution. I think that's something that we're starting to get closer on, but people still have not completely cracked. And I also I think I foresee a lot of tools that help 
automate the sales and marketing connectivity. You're seeing it mm-hmm. with more and more lead scoring mm-hmm. solutions, but you know, just also automating data that you're seeing in the product, trends you're seeing in the product mm-hmm. in terms of usage, and then turning that into really actionable insights for sales so that you know they can look through. If you have a massive territory, you can automatically say, all right, these are the 10 accounts I need to yeah. focus on the most. I love it. That's it. That's great. That's all we got today. All right. Well, this was awesome. I love catching up with both of you. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll be back soon. But and thanks to your team at Atulio for hosting us today. Your team is awesome, by the way. Which oh, we you. love. We're hiring. Love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Plug in. Oh, anyone who is an amazing marketer, you should go work for Sarah. She is an incredible boss, and also Twilio's on fire. Love it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.